When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobach. And this week, we're doing a little bit of a vacation Poirot. We are. This is summertime Poirot. Sort of, although he's not necessarily enjoying his leisure in this. He's not, but as as in our very special Christmas episode, he was not all that thrilled about going and spending a traditional English Christmas. And you could say the same about his vacation here. Let's tell you what the, <laughs> what the story actually is. <laughs> it's Problem at Sea, which was first published actually in the USA. Shock. I know, in, in a journal called This Week. Can't say I've heard of it. January 12, 1936. Then in February 1936, it was published in The Strand in the UK under a different title, Poirot and the Crime in Cabin 66. I have to say I prefer Problem at Sea, perhaps because it's one of Chrissy's most understated titles. If you're the murder victim, it's kind of more than just a problem. No, well, it's really funny though because uh, you know um, I think this it, we vaguely touched on this in another episode, but you know it's been the bestseller list of the Ruth Ware novel, The Woman in Cabin Ten, that came out last fall, and I mm-hmm. immediately thought of that. Absolutely, you don't have a cabin number in many a mystery story. In any case, Poirot is on a boat, which, as we know, is potentially a problematic thing. But before we get into all of that fun stuff, let's do what we do and start with the victim. Take it away, Catherine. So our victim is one Mrs. Clapperton. I don't know really a nice way to describe her. So this this is going to become <laughs> immediately complicated because all of my feminist instincts are going to come into play. Like, oh, well, I can't describe her like this. But in fact, the story does describe her as basically, with a nice word, be a shrew. Yeah, I think a shrew is both accurate and appropriate. It's still incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. But she essentially um, is a very wealthy woman, and she is traveling on this boat to Egypt with her husband, who is very submissive, and she makes sure that everybody knows that. And she also makes sure that everyone in her proximity knows her wealth and her mm-hmm. opinion on everything and the fact that she's better than them. <laughs> she is ultimately stabbed through the heart in her cabin. Because that's what happens if you have too strong of an opinion if you're a woman in 1936, apparently. <laughs> you get stabbed in the Yikes. heart. 
but there is this underlying current here of, well, she's a wealthy, opinionated woman, and so, of course, she has to get murdered in this. It's at least tempered by the fact that the writer of the story is a woman. Short tangent, I find it so much more uncomfortable and such an issue reading Dickens, because Dickens has so many female characters where you can tell he's almost elbowing the reader like, she's a piece of work, isn't she? And it's so deeply misogynistic. What, the Miss Havishams of the world, you're saying, are uncomfortable? Not even Miss <laughs> Havisham, because at least Miss Havisham is just so outlandish that she's she's just kind of a different thing, but he's got, he's well, got characters I don't know. Miss like, Havisham um, brings up a child to be vindictive towards men. Sure, but she's just <laughs> crazy. It's more when it's used as comedy. There's a character, Mrs. Jellyby. It's Bleak House. The whole joke with her is that she has eight children or a whole bunch of children, and she's really into charities, and the joke is that she spends all of her time helping other people, but she's a terrible mother. And it's this horrible thing of like, she's crazy. She should just be sticking to her own family and her poor children have to suffer because this woman is looking elsewhere. And it's meant to be funny and belittling and it's, ooh, it's so uncomfortable. Anyway, oh, Mrs. Jellybee. Okay, that is our victim, Mrs. Clapperton. Let's talk about the suspects because in the story, there are not many. Colonel Clapperton, her husband, he is a quote-unquote war hero, but that is a little controversial. It is. And from from the get-go, we'll get there. From the get-go. We do know that he was also a stage performer, dare we say an actor? (laughs) Set off all the alarm bells right now. (laughs) Actor alert. Yes, for sure. (laughs) So that's Colonel Clapperton. And we have General Forbes. He is, uh, as his name might suggest a general. He's also on board this Egyptian-bound ship, and he has some issues with Colonel Clapperton. <laughs> namely, namely that he does not believe that he should be a colonel. Right, and that he is not in any way a war hero. Right. Next, we have Ellie Henderson, who is a 40-something passenger, a bit of a nosy Nelly, it's true, mm-hmm. but likable. Certainly compared to Mrs. Clapperton, though, a slice of cheese is like... She's very observant. She's very observant. I got a little bit of a Catherine Gray vibe from her. And observant, but pleasant. She has a good sense of humor. Poro can banter with her. Equivalently, I think, she has a little bit more involvement than one might first suspect Mm -hmm. in this. Mm -hmm. Then we have Pam Cregan, who is an Mm. 18-year-old, apparently. And she is a massive flirt with Colonel right, Clapperton. And along, right along with her, Kitty Mooney, who is another teenager and essentially just another Pam Cregan. Correct, yes. They're, 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 cohorts. they're cohorts. Not the first Kitty, who's essentially just a copy of another teenager in a story. And she and Pam together are determined to rescue Colonel Clapperton from his odious wife. And they do use the word rescue repeatedly. So that's, that's not <laughs> us. That is, that is in the story that they are looking to rescue him. All right. So let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Poirot is ostensibly on a summer jaunt to Egypt. It is not explained why. And that's especially curious because he hates being on the water. We know this from multiple other stories and novels yeah. that there's nothing Poirot hates more than his Maldemere. Yeah, we have heard about that Maldemere so many times. I, I, I'm i not buying it. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, but. so I don't really know why he's taking this jaunt to Egypt, but he is. 
So he's apparently been in his cabin for a few days. <laughs> a little green at the gills. Yes. He eventually does emerge from his cabin, and he sort of befriends Ellie Anderson. Um, and he only does so because he's eavesdropping on the conversation that she's having with General Forbes. And he notes her to be both somebody who pokes at things and who is also very observant. That makes him very curious. And Mr. Poirot also notices the very wealthy, and did we mention odious, Mrs. Clapperton lording her wealth over anyone who will listen, complaining, browbeating her husband, just being terrible. Young Pam and Kitty tell Poirot that they want to save Colonel Clapperton. But now you know there was a man named Jack Dawson, and that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. <laughs> hey, we're on a boat. God. You know what? There was going to be a Titanic I mean, reference. I had to do it, and now we're done. So they want to rescue Colonel Clapperton and bring him ashore once the boat docks in Alexandria. Of course, Colonel Clapperton says he can't without his wife. So together, the two girls and Colonel Clapperton go up to the door of his wife's room. And Poirot follows them. And Poirot follows them because he's nosy. And yes. when they knock on Mrs. Clapperton's cabin door, Mrs. Clapperton chews them out. She says they can't come in. She says she won't go ashore. Colonel Clapperton even says, well, can I come in and get my guidebook? She says, no, I'm not getting up. And the door's locked and just, just leave. So, and he, could, he conveniently does have his passport in his pocket. Yes, that is very convenient. The, the girls are um, worried that, well, you know, will you even be able to leave at all? But he, he does have his passport. So that seems to be happenstance in their favor. And yeah, Poirot uh, witnesses all of this. Right. And so later in the day, some beads from like a vendor are found dropped in the hallway of the ship's cabins. I guess the vendors are coming on board to sell their wares to the passengers of the ship. Right. But Mrs. Clapperton refuses to answer her door. So eventually, Colonel Clapperton encourages a very worried ship staff to break protocol and unlock the cabin. Colonel Clapperton says that she has locked it from the inside, which also is a little suspicious. But regardless, they unlock the cabin. And when they open it, they find that Mrs. Clapperton has been stabbed. Through the heart. Through the heart. And that she's probably been dead for hours. What happened? Let's talk about the world as it actually is. <laughs> Bead vendors don't really kill people, at least not in this story, because that's not interesting. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure that's possible, but... I'm sure there are shady bead vendors out there. And <laughs> sure. And there certainly are, actually, in the adaptation, which we'll get to. Lots of bead vendors there. Clue number one is General Forbes's disdain of Colonel Clapperton. And uh, we mentioned that is because General Forbes thinks he's this low-life music hall performer who magically got the title of colonel and then more or less slept his way to marrying Mrs. Clapperton and benefiting from her money. He resents the idea that Clapperton is regarded as this war hero when it's just nothing of the sort, at least according to him. Right. And the deduction here is that Ding, ding, ding. He's an actor. <laughs> I mean, all yeah, you should no, get from no, this is, sure. that, is that He's Mr. Yeah, Colonel Clapperton is an actor. I don't believe that Christie actually ever uses the word act, no, actor. No, I don't, I is, don't think it ever comes up. Which is clever of her for an eagle-eyed reader such as myself, as I have become with the actor word. But that is what we should deduce <laughs> nonetheless. The A word. <laughs> the A word, exactly. Clue number two. So, clue number two, actor is, are we right? <laughs> 
it's it's a little bit clue number one part two, but it cannot be stated enough that Christy just treats the profession of acting like a massive red flag. I'm going to go out on a limb and Christy wrote so many stories that every rule that you try to make does get broken once or twice. So I'm sure there are stories in which actors are featured heavily and they don't end up being the murderer. But I I almost feel like if she mentions that someone's an actor, I mean, if she mentions that someone has acting skills, certainly that does not necessarily mean they did it. But in a short story, it kind of does. In a short story, it kind of does if someone has acting skill, not necessarily in a novel, but I think maybe if you find out that someone has acting skills and or was an actor slash performer in a short story, they did it. The thing here, which is a little more complicated, is A, you were totally right, Kepper, in that she never calls him an actor. He's a vaudeville performer, music hall performer. So we don't know entirely what he does. We know that he's really good at card tricks. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to play bridge with his wife. The reason why actors are, are, and we've talked about this, I mean, actors pretend. Actors put on some sort of a pretense or are just good at dissembling, and that's why they make good murderers well, and, in these right, stories. No, 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 just, right, so they're good at dissembling, but also in this case, we know that he's good at sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually does not entirely come into play. The weird thing about what's going to come into play, there's actually not a clue for But we do know that he is good at sleight of hand and he's good at card tricks. Right. And we actually, I mean, I will make this an addendum to our clue one and clues one and two, which absolutely are pretty much the same clue. But he showcases his sleight of hand. Correct. In the story. And that's also a typical Christie misdirect. If he's making everyone aware of the fact that he has that performative ability, perhaps there's a reason why that has something to do with something else. That there's a trickier reason other than, oh, well, then maybe if the murder was affected by sleight of hand, then he did it. Oh, wait, it couldn't have been. So that's not insignificant. Like, that's, it's usually a little bit more tricky than that. And that certainly is the case here. So. We'll get there. So clue number three, the cabin door is locked from the inside per Colonel Clapperton. Uh And the deduction there, again, since we are now so laser focused on Mr. Actor Colonel Clapperton, we only have his word for this. He's the one who checks the lock. And he is, of course, the person who very well might have another key and be able to lock it and unlock it at will. So it's given to us as a fact, a piece of information that we should just digest along with everything else. But it's really not as necessarily true as it's stated in the story. Correct. And so then the other clue is a little bit weird and actually doesn't necessarily have to do with the original murder. No, it has to do with Poirot's murder, the murder that Poirot does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to get to this in a second. But Mrs. Clapperton's purse basically falls out of her hand when she's rushing out of the smoking room after she's talking to Poirot earlier in the story. Everything falls out of her purse and she ends up leaving a prescription for Digitalin, which is Digitalis, which is um, heart medication. Heart medication. To use a very contemporary reference, she's very much Selena Myers in Veep. 
in that she like basically steals everyone else's stories to her own grandeur. <laughs> she's like a, a little bit of a hypochondriac, and so part of it is like she can't leave her cabin because she's like, oh, she's heart issues, and like, oh my gosh, she's so sick. Well, she doesn't. Her husband does. Right. And yeah, I mean, that's sort of a character based deduction where even though we see this slip of a prescription that's in her bag, what that means is that someone absolutely has a heart condition. But given what we know about her, we shouldn't necessarily think that, and, you know, even though it's in her bag, that she is the one with the heart condition. Let's get to the resolution here, which is obviously Colonel Clapperton, he did it. His and wife Poirot is. Poirot kills him. And Poirot kills him. So Colonel Clapperton <laughs> hated, hates his wife as much as everyone else does, even though he would never admit it on the surface. Poirot was suspicious of that from the start, though, because he figured there's no way this guy can't loathe this horrible woman. What is a stupid harpy who like ruins his life. Yeah. He's talking about a Rolls Royce at one point, and she's like, "Well, you mean my car?" Yeah, it's actually, I and mean, it's pretty brutal. Again, this is total gender politics here, but you could say she she emasculates him given the traditional male female right. role in which they are, at, you know, yes. functioning in 1930s Britain, Alexandria, or <laughs> 1930s Mediterranean vacation, yeah, <laughs> vacationing on the Mediterranean as posh British people. Yeah, so he wanted to just get rid of her and get her money, and he's an actor, and not only is he good at card tricks, but he is a ventriloquist, which is something that vaudeville music hall types can do. Apparently. And here's where I'm a little, okay. So ventriloquists, yes, they can do other voices and make it seem as if they're not the ones speaking, but the voices still come out of their body. Right. And this problem was not in any way solved by the Suchet adaptation either. No. If Colonel Clapperton is standing in front of his wife's door. And at this point, he's already gone in there, stabbed her through the heart. She's dead. And he's now, with his ventriloquism, pretending to be her uh-huh. as he's facing away from them. You would know that the voice was not coming out of the room, but that it was coming from him. I'm sorry, you would know. Can ventriloquists throw their voices five feet? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, they can throw their voices. That is like a really good ventriloquist can throw their voice. They throw their voice in pitch and timber. They don't physically throw their voice to a different geospatial location. No, but to an extent, ventriloquism doesn't work unless you buy that the voice is coming from somewhere other than the person who's actually doing it. So it is a matter of throwing your voice at some level. Yeah, that's why the traditional ventriloquist act involves that you're voicing a doll that is sitting right. on your lap. No, no. The voice itself doesn't have to travel I mean, anywhere. I'm not ultimately arguing with okay. you. <laughs> I mean, I will say this. I think you could say that people, and this is why humans are such bad witnesses, because perception is based on our expectations, right? So if Correct. you are in that situation as Poirot and Pam and Kitty were, and you're expecting that this man is talking to his wife, and you hear a voice that sounds like his wife's, and you know that there's every indication she's in that room, I guess you could make the argument that you would just assume that the voice was coming out of the room, even though it was in the same spot as the man right. who was doing mm-hmm. the voice. So well, it's a little on the edge for me in terms of do I actually believe that this could be pulled off in real it's life? It's two teenage girls, and it's Poirot down the hall. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah, let's get to, though, the more interesting part of this story, which is not in the Suchet adaptation. Very interestingly, this is one of the most interesting departures from source material and adaptation I think we've come across in this Suchet series. Poirot does this little act. Well, he does his regular denouement. Yes, he does his he does his sort of gather everyone together, and he puts on a show with a doll. Correct. And pretends that he's doing a ventriloquism. It's actually much better done in the Suchet adaptation than it is in the story. It's all a little confusing how he's actually pulling it off in the story, but in the adaptation, there's this little girl who they add as a character, and she's hiding behind mm-hmm. a thing, and, and Suchet really has fun with the little doll show it's right really creepy and kind of funny at the same time it's really hard to pull off creepy and funny simultaneously but he does because he's great Colonel Clapperton, and we love him we, we love him colonel clapperton freaks out in the middle of this and in the story he has heart failure because he realizes oh my god poirot figured it out i'm gonna hang and he dies and he dies <laughs> and poirot tells Ellie Henderson at the end of the story, yeah, I figured that that's what would happen. I did that on purpose because it's a great last line in the book. And it's that is preserved in the episode because it's too good of a final line, even though the episode doesn't totally go there. I do not approve of murder, said Hercule Poirot. Said the murderer, Hercule Poirot. He, he knew that he was going to induce a heart yeah. attack, and he did, and it worked. And Colonel Clapperton is dead because of what Hercule Poirot did. And Poirot is proud as a peach. Yep. Now, in the Suchet adaptation, he merely gets upset, Colonel Clapperton, and Ellie Henderson's feelings for Colonel Clapperton are a bit more a uh, part of the story, I think, in the adaptation. Well, they're, they're, than they're definitely they a part of the in, story in the s- story. I think they give her more of a motivation to get really angry at Poirot at the end of the episode, and that then induces him to say the same line, I do not approve of murder. But it is a much softer ending, and this is an example, I think, a rare example where they certainly stuck to the story into their usual additions of characters and suspects, and Hastings is there, and of course he has to be obsessed with a certain sport, and this time it's clay pigeons. <laughs> of course. Why not? <laughs> uh, of course. They're on the water, so they couldn't have a, a you know, yeah, a race car. Yeah, but clay pigeons makes so much sense on the water. I know, it's ridiculous. But yeah, he does not murder Colonel Clapperton at the end. This story, I think, takes it to the final degree in terms of Poirot's extrajudicial reckonings. I mean, he has purposely killed that murderer. He's kind of Dexter. Oh, that's right? dark. He's kind of Dexter in this story. This is Poirot's Dexter story. Yeah, he 100% aims to scare him so heavily because because Poirot, for all of Poirot's many skills, Poirot is not a skilled ventriloquist. He has a servant on the ship give the voice to the ventriloquist dummy that seems like it's an equivalent pitch to Mrs. Clapperton's voice. And so that's just what scares Colonel Clapperton literally to death. Yeah, not great. My usual issue, it's becoming a pet peeve with Christy, but in this case, the time of death was obfuscated by Colonel Clapperton. Correct. Because he killed his wife and then he had got all these witnesses. He left the boat for the day with the two teenage girls and the doctor, oh, so conveniently, can only hazily place the time of death at some point right. in the morning. Why well, wasn't this one time where he was like, well, actually, the time of death was between 9.32 and 9.37, in which case 
this would have been a whole lot simpler because Christy didn't need it to be clear cut. She just needed well, it to be fuzzy. So yeah. I just, the, the time of death thing is a little wonky in general. We should always be wary a little bit about the forensics in these cases. Right. We're not reading them for their forensic accuracy, are we? We're going to talk about <laughs> at a far later date on this podcast, Five Little Pigs. And that is a case in which Poirot uh, makes a massive, massive deal about the fact that he actually bases most of his sleuthing on psychology. Mm-hmm. And part of me feels like that excuse down the line is because Christy knew that her forensics ability was maybe not great. And I think to be fair to her, even though she was the ex, you know, she's the expert on poisons and whatnot. People always talk about that. What interested her was psychology. That's what mm-hmm. she found interesting. That's how Miss Marple solves her cases, too. We, we talked about that in the Tuesday Night Club. Right. Miss Marple figured it out because she distrusted the philandering husband immediately based on other philandering right. husbands. You know, right. like, no, no. same thing with this. No, he distrusted so- the husband who seemed to be okay with his harpy shrew of a wife, knowing that he couldn't have been. Right, that people don't behave like yeah. that. Yeah. And I find that more interesting, too, honestly. I mean, that's why I'm not a big CSI person, to be perfectly honest. Right. I think that one of the things that's really fascinating about Bad Little Pigs is the fact that Poirot voices this. He voices the fact that, you know what, it's, it's not about the footprint or the fingerprints. It's really about talking to people and understanding what motivates them to do wrong. And so that's what happens here. And that's also why he likes Ellie, Mm -hmm. right? Because even though she's actually, she's not complicit by any means, but she has a thing for the colonel. But he witnesses her from the very beginning of the story prying Mm -hmm. at people in a way that has these psychological undertones that Poirot thinks are fascinating, right? Yeah, she's a pretty tragic character, actually, because the man she was interested in was not only married but turned out to be a murderer, and it's noted that she is older. She has gray hair in the, in the source material, well, not in the adaptation. She's, but she's, she's stylish, and she yeah. is mm-hmm. vibrant, and she right. is... You would want to sit next to her at dinner. Like, she is. she's not a sad person well, but her fact, situation is no. is a little sad well it is a little sad but the fact though is that she's not made to be sad which i actually respect and that she's actually as much as you can count christy being sympathetic to a character which she's not always she's sympathetic to her to the extent that she doesn't describe her as covering her age but that's also described with a degree of respect well, because again, Christy abhors any type of dissembling at all. Correct. She yeah, has no, correct. ultimate respect for for people who should show who they are to the are, world. They are what they are. They are what they are, and that is exactly what murderers do not do. <laughs> you know, like that. A successful murderer is one who hides their true self, and she right. does not like that. Right. One thing I want to say, I mean, we kind of already, I feel like, discussed a lot of the adaptation, but it really bothered me throughout the whole thing. The exterior shots of the boat did not seem to match up with the interior shots, which were clearly shot on a studio lot. The boat looked so much tinier than the interior of what they were in. 
Did you think that? Am I crazy? No, I agree. This is a first season episode, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they did this and they did... Um, they did this and they did Triangle of Rose yes, back they, to back right. they because they the, were both correct. in the and they, Mediterranean. And they filmed yeah. part of them in Greece. Same place. Right? Yeah, they filmed part of it in Greece. So these were some cost-saving measures, I think, on the part of the production. They were cost-saving measures, but, I mean, it's actually... David Suchet talks about how it was telling that they were willing to even spend the money to go there in the first place. But, yes, given the fact that they were going to this great expense to even go abroad, they did those two episodes together. So I don't know if that boat ends up getting used in Triangle Roads. I don't think that it does. I mean, we'll get there at some point. Probably, but it just looked so like every time you saw a person walking on the outside of the boat, I was like, you can fit like five people in that boat. And then they, you would cut to the interior and it was like they were on the freaking Titanic. He saved me in every way that a person can be saved. Not quite the Titanic, but it, it just seemed like it was about 10 times bigger or five times bigger. I don't know. No, it's a quibble. No, it's a quibble. I, it's no, a beautifully no, no, shot no. episode. I've never been on a boat. Have you? You've never been on a boat? Well, I mean, I've been on a boat. Have you been on a cruise ship? Oh, no. No, and I never will. Yeah, that's like something that I will never do. No, I, I would but, feel trapped and have a panic attack. I, I would feel oh, like yeah, I need I'm to claust- get off I'm right now. I'm super claustrophobic. So yeah. It, yeah. Would, it would be the last thing I would ever do. But to bring it up again, that Ruth Ware book, it really seemed like it was like some kind of palace at sea. And I was like, this is just going from the UK to Scandinavia. Like, how big is this boat? <laughs> I'm not saying that she is wrong, but the descriptions of it made it seem like this kind of epic place and that's a little bit how I felt with the interior shots I was like how big could this possibly be by the way I actually did spend one night overnight on a cruise in Milford Sound in New Zealand on my honeymoon and it was on a boat that was about the size of the actual exterior like the actual boat used to shoot this episode and yeah it was close quarters But it was beautiful because Milford Sound is like where the elves live in Lord of the Rings. So misty waterfalls and cataracts and whatnot. The Valley of Imladris. In the common tongue, it's known by another name. Rivendell. Well, hey, that sounds still claustrophobic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Arwen was waving from the cliffs or or whatever, but... (laughs) Your your one ring to rule them all on your wedding finger. (laughs) Right. I will also say props to the actress who played Mrs. Clapperton in the episode because she really, she did a good job of of making her odious. I mean, I called her, we, we do some notes before these episodes and I believe I called her a grade A... B word. B word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know the famous final line in the apartment? Did you hear what I said, Miss Kubelik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Right. 
was like this great. Oh, they're gonna be happy, maybe. Um, yeah. And she, I'm probably not, but probably you know, not. We'll, but we hey. can pretend though. We yeah. can pretend. The movie, the, the ending's at least allowing us to pretend. Let's look away now. Look away. Look away. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> She's alive. They're all alive. Okay, it's fine. Her suicide attempt in that charming romantic comedy was not successful. <laughs> It's fine. But when she was like, oh, for heaven's sake, get on and deal. When they're playing bridge with that sad other couple with the woman who keeps on eating chocolates. Do you ever go down on your knees and thank God you didn't have any children? Well, as a matter of fact, we did. Two. A little boy and a little girl. Oh, for heaven's sake, get on and deal. I don't know. There's yeah. just like a lot of little. The two young women who played the teenagers were really hamming it up in an entertaining way. You're coming with us. It's a kidnapping. Oh. Clap it and nothing. To the boat deck. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of entertaining moments in the episode. It's partially because it's the first season, but it's also just generally hammier. Yeah. As a whole, than a lot of well, episodes Hastings are, on I think. the there's a whole interlude of Hastings getting his photo taken on a cardboard camel. Okay, sure. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> The sort of narrative compromises that they have to make to include Hastings into the story, they're interesting. Well, they, yeah, they have Hastings catch a jewel thief. There's extra intrigue. One of the shipmates is a jewel thief. They do their thing. They fill out these stories very well. Clive Exton adapted this one. He knows what he's doing. Well, <laughs> me did enough of them. This is one of the earliest ones that I think he actually wrote the entire screenplay for, though. It is, yes. So that is Problem at Sea. Join us next week when our next novel is Lord Edgeware Dies. Which is another Poirot. Another Poirot. And in the meantime, please contact us. We love hearing from everyone. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine individually at Brobcat. You can find us on Instagram at All About Agatha. You can visit us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And we very much look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. Bye.